Thanks for listening to this episode of The Narrative. Before we get started, if you've got a question or a comment for a future episode that you'd like us to address, feel free to give us a call or text us at 614-769-7077. Again, that number is 614-769-7077. Or you can send us an email, thenarrative at ccv.org. And welcome back to another episode of the Narrative Podcast. I'm Mike Andrews, joined by Aaron Bear and David Mahan, as always. And gentlemen, I don't know if you know this, but last week we got so much feedback after David talked sports for the entire first segment that, oh my that God. we're just gonna we're gonna go all sports all the time, and we're gonna let you run with it, my man. Wow, yeah, you know I'm a big sports fan. Everybody knows that, but I'm just uh, true athlete over here. Yeah, well, I am <laughs> so an athlete. Now, now, you know, you now I've been to the is. chiropractor. This man got me right. Say, right, it's all good. Man. It's all good. Shout out to Sparks Family Chiropractic, Lancaster. The, the, all right, our, our, apparently our new sponsor yeah, of the program. Right. Well. If I can try and get us back on track after that, we've got some news stories that we need to talk about from this past week. And uh, we do need to get a little bit serious here for this first one. Um, Big story out of Memphis, Tennessee, uh, involving Tyree Nichols and uh, his unfortunate death. Um, Another incident of police being involved in in a suspect's death and leaves us wrestling with some big questions and David, I know you've been looking at this story and, and had some thoughts. So I just want to turn it over to you and let you kind of yeah, run yeah, with Mike, it. I don't, I don't know if there's any like major hot takes. It's just to, to watch that. Um, you know, his, his funeral is actually going on at the, at the point of the recording right now. Uh, it, it's actually going on right now. And I just, you know, been thinking about it. And, you know, many have seen the recordings um, of, of, you know, the body cam footage. Um, this man was unarmed, um, 30 year old kid, traffic stop. And we, you know, it's funerals today. Five grown men, um, trained officers, special forces unit, could not subdue one man. Um, usually these types of things get politicized. Uh, I think this one was handled well. Um, but, but you know, I was kind of going back and forth with a law enforcement friend of mine, <clears throat> trained detective and all that. And I asked him, like, is there any justification for why five grown men could not subdue a 30-year-old young man. Um, I don't care if he's on drugs or what. You know, if each guy just took one limb, you know, if you want him on his belly, put him on his belly, right? Um, but the fact that he gets up and and then you chase him down and, I mean, they baton him. I mean, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but it it is horrific. And I think there's some balance that needs to be brought to this whole issue of um, law enforcement. You know, it's like if if we can't talk about this rationally, um, I'm, I'm all for law enforcement. Uh, you, you guys heard me say over and over on the podcast, I've got many friends and I, those are the first guys I contact, you know, when this stuff happens, not CNN or Fox or, but I contact guys who know, who live it. And, um, and everybody tends to agree when, when law enforcement is wrong. Um, but when the, when it gets politicized, I, I've actually heard, especially on conservative radio, I'm gonna be honest with you. Um, somebody's quick to jump on, like, well, maybe he reached for the guy's gun or maybe he was on drugs. How can you watch that video and say that from what we're seeing, there was any justification for why he had to be beaten like that? He was beaten like an animal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, 
And that should change us, you know, and I think it should change the conversation. And when I hear, you know, if if the police were right, then it seems like one group would want to talk about that and shout that from a rooftop. If if the police were wrong, then that group tends not to want to say anything. And uh, and I think we just all need to, you know, um, bring some balance to the issue. Yeah. Dave, even listening to you, it, it it reminds me again, like with with Christians, this, this is the the Christian walk, right? Is that we always have to carry two things in our hands, right? Like let let let's just talk about faith, right? Uh, faith is faith is by by grace alone, mm-hmm. uh, by by the gift of God, right? We are we are saved not by our works, mm-hmm. right? But we are, but faith without works is dead. Right. Right. So we, we have to have both. Right. We can't be all faith and we can't be all works. It, it's got to it's got to be both. Um, and I feel like, you know, in, in today's in today's culture, it's it's impossible to be able to hold both of the to hold two things in your hands. Right. You, yeah. you either got to be all all in over here or all in over there. Um, and and again, that's just not reality. Right. That the, yeah. the, the, the reality, the Christian walk is tension, right? Um, and and I think again, this one is is so especially especially in this incident where everybody is like, this is very clear cut what That's happened. Right. And so you what what you have is, you know, I keep saying every time somebody says the narrative is yeah, we need to have a little bell that dings every time. The narrative, as soon as a story like this happens, everybody's trying to jump on it and fit it into their narrative. Mm-hmm. So either Oh look! This is look how awful police are. Right. Or oh look, the media is uh, attacking the police again. This was a race thing. Right. Or... Like exactly. Which you know, we we all can acknowledge how, how how weird that is to try to fit this into that narrative. Right. Right. All five. For those of you who don't know, all five of the police officers were African American. Actually, there were seven that were charged one way or another. One of them was white, and the rest yep. of them were black. But um, you know, it it. Uh, I think they'll they'll probably get it was second degree murder. I think they'll probably get fifteen to twenty five years, uh, at least the five um, that that were captured on on the video. But the the thought that comes when when you, when at least when I watch that is how often does stuff like this happen and it's not caught on? Mm-hmm. Really, I think we're foolish if if we don't think that question. Like like this must be going on a lot. It from the guys I know, communicate communities I lived in. Things that have happened to me personally, I know this goes on a lot, and so there there is some reform that is definitely necessary within within law enforcement. There are some systemic issues within certain departments, right? Maybe not the same issues all over the planet, but in certain departments, the system is a mess. So, Dave, let me ask about that. Do you, when you say there's systemic problems, do you mean by this that it's like you think there are? Throughout law enforcement, there is individuals that have, like, it is systematically instilled in, in and, and I don't know what we mean by systematically, so let, I, I even want to kind of define terms here, that it is taught to look at, you know, black citizens worse than white citizens. No. What, what, what do you mean by systematic? Thing? No, because, again, this wasn't a race thing, right? right. This, was, this was black on black. I'm just saying, in terms of law enforcement, like, the guy that I was just talking to, I was like, aren't there checks and balances within the system to weed out guys like this? Mm-hmm. You know, he basically said these were sharks on a mission to hurt. And and that's what they did. And when he refused a few commands, 
it just gave stupid people, you know, more license to be dumb, you know, uh, even even more stupid. And so I'm saying like it, he was like, yeah, there are checks and balances, but they're easy to get around. Mm-hmm. That's a problem within the system. But to our point here, when we say systemic racism, there's something that's triggered in our minds to make us go to a narrative like in this yeah. case race. Yeah. Right. And and then the other side goes to the opposite extreme. But people who really care is just like, wait a minute, can't we just look at, for one, like Tyree Nichols, all that went down from from the cops to where to, how the paramedics handled it, right? They they mishandled it. Twenty five minutes for the paramedics to get on the scene, and then they sit and look at him half the time. Um, does that happen like that in every community? Yeah. Is is the response time quicker in some communities? Absolutely, it is. Call the paramedics down here on Parsons at Stowe Mission and see how long, if ever, it takes for somebody to respond. I promise you it's different than that in Dublin, right? And so that's what I mean by um, systemic. Yeah, and I, I, the, my, my, my thought back on that, to that point, Dave, and I, I, would, I would agree with you. So let me piece this, parse this through in a few different fronts. I think on the one hand, um, you have... You have issues like I remember. You guys remember the Philando Castile shooting, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Uh, and so that was that was probably probably eight years ago. African American guy uh, who was was shot in his car, um, and he had a concealed carry, but he wasn't he wasn't reaching for his gun. He was reaching for his wallet, and the and the cop shot him, right? And so again, this was one where immediately. Um, Everyone jumped out into you know to, to their sides, right? And right. what? And, and maybe this is what you're saying, Dave. What, what I remember, I, I was working at the Arizona Attorney General's office at the time, and I, I met with our. I was talking to our our troopers, our our, our special agents about uh, about the situation, and their their whole thing was kind of if if I understand what you're saying, Dave, right? But I don't want to put words in your mouth. Tell me if you think I'm wrong. Most um, generally wrong, most but I'm typically right. You out. Typically, I am right. No, but. <laughs> But they 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 kind of said, yeah, it is a systematic rate, a systematic issue, but not a systematic race issue. They right. said this was, this was a ill-trained and immature officer. Mm-hmm. They said, you know, when they said they watched this, when they watched the video, the, the I remember the one guy who was he trained law enforcement officers, um, the guy over our, our special agents, and he said. Like that should have the cop should have never put himself in this position. He said when you. Because you know, if you remember, he he pulled the cop, he pulled the guy over, went up to him, asked him if he had a weapon on him, and then uh, the guy said, "Yes, I do," and he went and you know just sort of stood there, and everything just tensions just escalated, eventually leading up to him being shot. And he said, "You know, the the way way you're supposed to do this is you approach the car. You said you have a weapon on you. If they say yes, you go back to your car." You ask him to come out of the car, place his weapon on on top of the car, right. and then walk Processes. towards you. Right? He was like, "There is no reason he was standing over him while that like the, he the, the cop should not have put himself in that position." And he said, "So he said that's the, the the systematic issue here was just we have a system that was not training our police officers well." Right. And so you had uh, so that I mean that was what he was, yeah. was saying. I, again, I don't know what. No, that's what exactly where are. I'm yeah. at. Yeah. That's, that's exactly where I'm at. Is yeah. that is that there's some. Things either not being followed or or when they're not being followed, processes that will weed this kind of stuff out. 
Well, and this is the, the reason why I point that out is because this gets to to the point you made about city of Columbus. And I live in city of Columbus. I don't live too far from from, right. from where we're talking about here. So I, we know we've we have called the police before. You know, Christmas Day, somebody tried to steal my neighbor's car. Actually, but you know, it's in in city of Columbus. Yes, we have really long um, we have really long response times, but that's in large part because of the defund the police movement here. Right. 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 And and so it's. And that's one where it's like, okay, so folks got they they jumped onto the narrative around systematic racism, and then their answer was, we need less police. And now we can't. We have recruiting class, entire like rounds of recruiting classes where we get zero cops in. Right. So so the again, and this is one thing. One of my constant criticisms of of the left is that a lot of times they're salute. They'll identify the right problem. They'll identify violence is a problem. And then their solutions tend to exacerbate that problem, right? right? Um, and we'll take advantage exactly. of the problem. And, and, and again, I, I think this is where we'll see a lot of times conservative media is they'll identify a problem and then they'll recognize this is an opportunity for us to make money on talking about how terrible the problem is while not actually having any solutions for it. Yeah. Um, but, but, yeah, again, it's, you know, th- this is – what 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 jumps out to me on this is you know first and for, foremost mourn with those mourn weep with those who weep, and then Dave I think to your point well taken which is like as Christians we shouldn't be afraid to say okay maybe there is something we should yes. look at here just because it's not the narrative that the left is pushing doesn't mean there's not something else happening yeah and BLM uh, cannot be the only voice speaking yeah and and when we were I think Dave you'd probably agree with this and that when we refuse to say, okay, maybe there is an issue here because we don't, we don't want to give any credence to anything the left has to right. say when we, that, that leads us to, okay, maybe we'll just say there's, there's nothing here. It just exacerbates the problem. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would even add to that. We need to be involved in these discussions because image bearers are involved as Christians. Yep. This is, this is an issue that affects people who bear God's image and, why we mourn with those who mourn is because uh, a valuable life has been lost. Right. And if there's something that we can do to to help that from happening again, then yeah. by so all prayer, means. Prayers for the family. Yeah. Prayers yeah, for real. Um, for that whole community. Yeah. And an- another issue that's in the news this week uh, regarding image bearers and protecting the dignity of all people uh, is not too far from us here in, in Xenia near Dayton at a YMCA. There was a man who identified as a woman who was changing in the women's bathroom. And this wasn't a chiropractor, right? Yeah. No, sorry. No, wow. <laughs> Y'all see how he did that family? Uh, no, did you dirty? But this man who was, who was identifying as a woman using the female changing facilities, uh, has been charged with uh, public indecency, three counts for exposing himself to women. There were children involved in some of these instances. And David, this is one that you've been involved in and can maybe speak to a little bit, but it just shows why biology matters. Reality matters. And we need to protect women and children. And and I'll say courage matters because we we know this has been happening for a long time in every community. And this is the first time prosecutors, especially elected officials, have had the courage to say, not in our town. Yeah. So tell us what's going on. Very unique situation here in that, um, you know, nobody was running around with pitchforks. I mean, you walked into the room. There was a community meeting. There was three uh, different um, 
groups or families that were affected by this one guy. So, you know, two were pastors, one the pastor's wife worked at the YMCA, another one um his his wife and daughters just kind of, you know, frequented there and um but uh they just had horrific stories. One mom went to the shower with her two daughters. They, you know, just swam and everything and the mom comes out first, thanks thank God and and there's a man in in the changing facility um who was paying attention to her. Um, you know, not doing his own thing, but paying attention to her. She confronted the man. He said that he had every right to be there just like she did, uh, you know, based on the policy. <clears throat> and then, you know, she kind of, it just hits her. Like while she's arguing with this man to get out, her daughters are about to come out of the shower too. And um, she screams and tells her daughters don't come out. And so now that's what she does every time she's at the pool for any, you know, potential of any young lady being there. Um, this is, uh, another, another, the pastor's wife, um, um, his daughter, uh, pastor white works at the YMCA. His daughter was actually being watched. Um, he, he was not doing other things. He was just watching her. And so, um, this is what's going on. And then it was another family. And so that trial, uh, is, is going on, um, I think Monday, yeah, February 6th. Um, there are charges being brought and, uh, and hopefully they get justice there, but, but this is a community, very tight-knit community in Xenia, Ohio, and um, two of the three uh, folks are pastors. And so it's, it's a very unique situation that um, is getting a lot of attention. Folks are handling it very well, and they're lawyered up. When you talk about the policy, the, the man in question or the one who's been charged here saying that the policy says he could be there, why is there so much confusion around these policies? And it seems like the YMCA is operating out of one set of beliefs that isn't necessarily accurate or necessary, correct? Yeah, a lot of this is on, it's definitely not necessary. And they have um, asked the attorney general to speak into this, not not as a you know a lawyer or whatever, but just to say, how do we interpret this, mm-hmm. these civil rights laws? Um, because it's the Civil Rights Commission um, really is where a lot of people are basing their policies right now. Um, which is an issue in in and of itself. But how do we define you know define male and females? Really, where we're all at. Which, uh, so so much to say about these things. Uh, first and foremost, like um, let's let's never, Lord help us, that we never uh, act like uh, that is a hard question, right? Like this is. Yeah. This is what what the left and the media and 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 sort of uh, academia and the legal world wants to do is like, what is a man and a woman? Mm, however, shall we know? If only there was some if there easy was some way to way tell way to figure this out. No, nah, it's not hard. <laughs> We've known this for we're like like and and I I I think you know. We always want to be careful here uh, about how we mock or, or do, but I, there's things like this where it is, it is worth mocking because what they're doing is so hard to act like this is a difficult question. So, so we know what the answer is there, um, and we we should not act like it like it is hard. The other thing about this, Mike, I think I think that's an important question you asked. Like how how did this happen? Um, and again, this is for for the church to recognize. This happened two ways. It happened through corporate America, and it happened through politicians, right? Um, so you had have corporate America that has been completely consumed uh, by sort of woke culture, and, and that this is the YWCA. Yes, the YWCA is 
a 501c3 nonprofit, but not all 501c3s are like each other. Mm -hmm. They are a massive institution uh, and have gotten sort of steeped in this. Now, again, what you'll find is a lot of these things that locally as they run, they might not be as, as woke as they are at their corporate headquarters, but the YWCA is a, is a corporate entity that has fully gone into um, dive deep into this. The other side of this is though uh, is is weak and and um, you know uh, unrighteous politicians, right? So uh, what you have here happening is uh, the YWCA is first and foremost pushing their own policy, but they're hiding behind the federal government um, and uh, HHS and the Biden administration saying that if a man says he's a woman, therefore he is a woman and, and has to have full privileges to these facilities. You know, we can talk about how they're, they're playing off the Bostock case that our, our good Justice Gorsuch delivered for us. Um, and hopefully he's going to see things like this and recognize the harm that he did with that with that decision. Um, but this is this is a a, a a a massive institutional move that's that's happening that has made this be everywhere, right? I mean, it's it is. My wife just ran into this the other day of of you know in a restroom in in, in the city of Columbus where there was a uh, there was a very clearly a man in there, and we we've talked about this happening down at the state house and things like this. Like it, it's happening all over all, all the time, every day, um, and and it's being driven uh, by these particular forces. I think again that the thing that really jumps out to me about this, Mike, uh, is that you have here not just the courage of the local community to stand up, but I think one of the things that, as Dave uh, and Ruth uh, Edmonds on our team have been tracking with this situation and staying involved in it, uh, that has really jumped out to me is both the the compassion and the professionalism that these folks in Xenia are managing this with, right? So you know we talk about this all the time at CCV is. We want the only thing people have that, that, that people can really have against us is the cross of Jesus Christ, right? Let's let's not give that. Let's not give the left or the media or our opposition, however we want to say this, any other reason to hate us uh, other than the cross of Jesus Christ. Um, and I, I got to give so much credit to the folks involved in this. In that, you know, they're not coming out here saying you know we're, they're they're not preaching every time they go into this, but. They're they're handling everything with so, so much compassion that the only thing people can hold against them is that they don't think dudes are girls, right? The, and the, the, there was a one of the pastors um, said something. He said, "He said, guys, you have to understand. I, I understand we want to protect the dignity of every human person, whoever they are." He said, "But my daughter, the first time she ever seen a naked male was in the YMCA locker room. Hmm. That." For a parent, I mean, what, what does that mean? I, I had no control over that. I mean, it, it just, it gripped me like, that's crazy. Um, and then it's like, well, we got to protect the dignity of this person who's struggling with gender dysphoria, uh, whatever. First of all, if it was a woman that was sitting in there just gawking at girls undressing, that would be weird, mm -hmm. right? Nobody even questions that. Right, the dignity of those little girls and women, they the gender thing just takes over, and we all mentally check out. We're asking yeah. six-year-old girls to protect the dignity of grown men. This yep. is ridiculous. What are we doing? Yeah. And so, if you're out there and you're thinking like, well, you know, we have to be compassionate. No, we absolutely have to be compassionate, um, but we shouldn't be putting the adult needs above the needs of the child. 
in any sense. Uh, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. And that's happening in so many spheres where we see children paying the price. And one last thing to touch on, hopefully some good news for kids uh, in that the state of the state was yesterday and Governor DeWine came out. Um, maybe not as forcefully as we would like in terms of educational choice and backpack bill and that kind of thing. But he did talk about increasing uh, ed choice scholarships and vouchers that are available. And Aaron wanted to give you a chance to, to issue some comments on that. Or Yeah. You know, again, step in the right direction. I, I really mean it. Like to have the governor come out and talk about expanding uh, ed choice is, is significant and he deserves a lot of credit for that. Right. Um, and we're excited about it. And, and, but Expanding basically the income, make, making school choice based on how much money you make um, is bad policy. Um, it's unfair. It's disincentivizing to families, right? So if, mm -hmm. if you're somebody under the governor's plan, if you're somebody and you're making uh, $110,000 a year with four kids, right? Um, and uh, you decide uh, and you get a job offer to make $120,000 a year, you're going to turn that down because if you get up, start making you know, over $111,000 a year, which is about the the, the cutoff on this uh, for that family, um, you are gonna, going to lose – that $10,000 raise is going to cost you $40,000 a year, hmm. right? Because uh, th that, that money that you're spending on your kid's tuition is going to be significant now, right? So it, it is – as opposed to just saying, right, this is – we have school choice not just to help – low-income kids or, or middle-income families, uh, access choice. That's a part of it. Access better schools, right? That's a part of it. But school choice is about improving education for all and incentivizing schools uh, to perform for the kids in their, uh, in their communities. We have been investing millions and millions, billions and billions of dollars in education every year, and we have been getting worse and worse results. Um, and if we really want to improve education, um, and, and make schools accountable. We want to deal with things like CRT and LGBT and all this kind of crazy stuff in the schools. Uh, the best way is make the parents the accountability mechanism. That's why we need backpack. And, I, and honestly, this is why I'm excited about what the governor has done is that I think this is a great opening to the conversation in this General Assembly, in this budget, to get us to backpack. And, and we are saying anything but but full backpack is a failure for families right now because every family, especially after, you know, think about those those families in in uh, Upper Arlington uh, that just you know the the accuracy and media videos that we played those families in Upper Arlington uh, deserve the ability for they're paying more taxes than most and they deserve the yeah. ability to have their taxpayers dollars follow their kids wherever they go. How, how can this be? How can you say on one hand that that parents deserve the right or the freedom to um, you know send their kids where wherever their needs are going to be best met? Um, and then at the same time, say, well, we're only going to ascribe that freedom to this subset of people, yeah. to certain parents. I mean, that's really what we're saying. Like every parent deserves that right. If I'm, I don't care how much money I make, you know, I, um, you know, I deserve the right to, to send my kids. If, if I'm paying taxes, some of the, that money that goes tw towards the child's education, I need to be able to determine where that money goes and how it's yeah. spent. And that's going to be the only thing that actually makes these schools get better. Cause right now, these families, these schools don't have to care about what families are saying um, because they're going to get the money either way. So, yeah. Yep. And keep tuned into the, the narrative. We'll keep talking about this as it progresses through the General Assembly. And obviously, you heard it from Aaron, we're going to keep pushing for the backpack bill because we think that's the, the best solution. So 
Right now, we're going to take a quick break and we will come back with our interview for the week. We've got Del Tackett uh, in person with us. It's going to be a great conversation about worldview and some of his work promoting biblical worldview to the church. Stick around. Hey, Narrative listeners. You know, Christians in the marketplace today face more unique and challenging threats than ever before. Businesses are following woke capitalism, chambers of commerce are beholden to social justice, and secular activists are chipping away Christians' First Amendment rights. As Ohio's only Christian Chamber of Commerce, the Christian Business Partnership stands in the gap to advocate for, to educate, and to celebrate Christian business owners. Joining the partnership also allows businesses to provide their employees with health care insurance, workers' compensation, and exclusive banking and educational discounts. To find out more and to join, go to cbpohio.org. That's cbpohio.org. And we're back on the narrative. I'm CCV Communications Director Mike Andrews, joined by CCV President Aaron Bear, our Policy Director David Mahan, and our special guest today, Dr. Dell Tackett. And most of you are going to know Dell as the creator of Focus on the Families, The Truth Project, a nationwide initiative designed to bring Christian worldview to the body of Christ. He formerly served as the president of the Focus on the Family Institute and is a former senior vice president of Focus on the Family. He also is an ordained elder in the Presbyterian Church of America. Dell. Welcome to the show. It's so great to have you here with us in person. Well, how have you seen the impact um, of that project and what things stand out to you most of having changed in the time since you first did it? Well, I appreciate that. We filmed uh, the engagement project back in 2005 and released in 2006. So we're entering entering into the uh, 17th year (laughs) after that was released. And, uh, And I can tell you, I don't think any of us had any inkling as to what God was going to do. And we have to say that he's the one who then put his hands on it because right from the get-go, I was um, under the deep uh, impression from the Lord that he wanted this done in small groups in the home, led by someone who was committed to pray for people. And and that's how we were going to hopefully instill that biblical worldview in people. Well, what that meant was that you couldn't just sell this in the open market because we wanted it in the hands of people who were committed to lead the small group. So we had no budget for, uh, for advertising and marketing and so forth, uh, which uh, was viewed as kind of a stupid way to, <laughs> to build a, a product, you know, to build a product and then advertise it. Well, the Lord took that, and he has then taken it all over the world. And it's not because of me. It's just because he put his hands on it. And... Uh, so the first translation was in Arabic. I mean, who would have believed that that would happen? Uh, but there were small groups and started in, in in the Middle East, and and I've been to I've been to Brazil. I had the the privilege of going all through Brazil and helping them launch the Portuguese translation. And so there have been estimates that, and this was several years ago, that over twenty million people have been through the Truth Project. Well, wow. that's just incredible to me, yeah. and. And uh, I got a letter from uh, someone in the kingdom of Tonga. I didn't even know where the kingdom of Tonga was. I had to look it up on a map. And I said, well, how in the world did it get there? But it got there because God multiplied it and moved it all over. And the purpose of all that was, goes back to what the Lord, you know, weighed on me a number of years ago to do everything I could to get the body of Christ healthy and vibrant to be light and salt. And so 
that first of all began with doing everything I could to help instill in the body of Christ a biblical worldview. And so, yes, a lot of has changed since then. A lot of things that none of us would have predicted. Uh, but the, the, the worldview that God has revealed to us in his word, and even in, in general revelation, is still strong. It's still the foundation upon which we stand. And it was relevant in, in the days of the emperor in Rome, and it's relevant for us today. So that doesn't change. The application can change. You know, in in the Truth Project, a lot of times you use that that vision of a of a structure, right? That we're building. So even in this conversation, define worldview for us. Okay. Um, with, like, how, how do you think about it? How do you encourage people to think through yeah. what a worldview is? Well, Aaron, I have to I have to tell you that one of our pro- I love the worldview textbooks that are out there. They're great. I think one of the limitations is that we try to define it in in one term, and and or in one way, and I, I think that's problematic. So I see worldview, and I try to respond this way with talking about three different worldviews, and not, I'm not talking about Marxism and so forth. What I'm talking about is there is a formal worldview. We define the word worldview. There's a formal worldview, and a formal worldview is the kind of thing that you and I can study. If we wanted to study Marxism, we could go to the library and get a book, and the book would lay out uh, for you as you read through it the truth claims that Marxism purports to paint a picture of reality. Uh, you could get a book, book on Islam, it would do the same thing. Here are the truth claims that Islam makes that purports to paint a picture of reality. You could, you could do them all of the different b- worldviews, you can get a Bible, and a Bible will lay out for you the what we believe are the true truth claims about reality. And that's a formal worldview. But that doesn't mean that my worldview matches that. So the second thing that's important is understand one's personal worldview. Because a personal worldview is that set of truth claims that I have embraced so deeply that I think those truth claims reflect what is really real. And that drives what I think, how I act. Even my own emotions are driven by my personal worldview. And my personal worldview, I can say I'm a Christian, but my personal worldview may not fully match uh, the formal biblical worldview. And so that's one of the problems we have with, with surveys. So when we did the truth project, we talked about the Barna survey that said that only 7% of evangelical Christians had a biblical worldview, but I think it's much worse than that because that what was that testing? That was testing your knowledge of a formal worldview, yeah. right? Yeah. It doesn't test whether or not you really believe that, or if you believe, uh, for example, I've talked to, to uh, young people and others, as well, if you really dig down into their belief, their truth claim, what they believe, and that is their significance and who they are is based upon how much weight they have. And that drives their action. And the truth claim, truth claim they believe is they look in the mirror and they think that they're ugly or insignificant unless they're less weight than what they are now. So that's a truth claim. That doesn't come from a biblical worldview, but it's it's so ingrained within them, their worldview, it drives their actions. It can drive them to death, 
But so that's the personal worldview. The third one is an interesting one. I call it the professed worldview. And the professed worldview are those things that we profess because we believe a truth claim that says, if I profess those things, then it will go well for me. So this is kind of like the, you know, the answer in Sunday school is Jesus. Yeah. Well, you know, right? Right. <laughs> Why do we say that? Because we think that's the answer. And so these things we need to understand in ourselves, uh, because it's easy for me to say, well, I'm a Christian, and then and not really deal with the reality of the truth claims that I've bought. Because we all, today more than ever in the history of mankind, are bombarded with worldview truth claims. And the vast majority of those are contrary to God's biblical worldview. We get them constantly from media, from entertainment, and so forth. And those things, kind of like smoke under the under the door, can become ingrained within us. And, and once we begin to embrace those, we begin to act as if they're true. So if these are very, very important things for the people of God. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to just warn Mike and David here because you guys are just going to have to butt in because I, I can talk about this stuff all day. This is like, I'm pushing, I'm pushing. I know, you're a bully. I said, get in no, line. No, get this, in this line. Is, exactly. If you guys got things to say. Bully. Because this, this, is, this is fascinating. To, I, I've not heard, again, I've, I've listened to your teaching for a long time. I've not heard it broken down in this way uh, before. And, cause, and I, I do think, uh, when, especially when you talk about that professed worldview, you know, we're, we're in this season right now preparing for some ballot initiatives in Ohio, mm-hmm. right? On, on, uh, they're going to try to put abortion on the ballot here. Um, and we're talking about, th- these are the types of things that political consultants talk about all the time, that especially when you talk about professed worldview, that's the, that's, the, that's the thing that folks vote on, right? So this is the, you know, I want to be seen as a loving and caring person. And so I'm, you know, something that, uh, the heartbeat bill that's going to say, uh, a woman can't get an abortion that's in a difficult situation. Well, I, I, that, that's, I'm not going to think deeper than that. My, my formal worldview might tell me that murder is wrong. But my professed worldview says it seems, or, you know, I think about marijuana, David. You and I are talking about this all the time. You know, my, my, my formal worldview would say it's wrong to have more people doing drugs and it's more dangerous to have kids be exposed to these things. But my professed worldview says I don't want to be seen as a fuddy-duddy that, that is opposed to marijuana. So that's going to supersede whatever. So how, how right. do you how do you see these three areas intersecting with each other, interacting, and, and how yeah. does this form our, our evangelism or even just our, our political movements? Well, yeah, see, I would say it was the personal worldview that's at, at work there because my personal worldview, I battle this all the time. My guess is that many of us do. I battle the, this personal worldview that says my significance is, is bound up in what people think of me. Mm-hmm. And so that is what causes me then uh, to uh, be swayed by the emotional appeals. And that's basically what we get a lot. We get these emotional appeals that try to appeal to our emotions that will make, we don't want to be uh, a hater. We don't want to be, um, you know, all of these bully names that we're called because we want to be significant. And part of that is we want to be loved, we want to be liked, we want to be accepted. And uh, so that personal worldview uh, is what drives my actions then. And so the professed worldview is what happens when 
when young people get 100% on the Bible quiz and we think, we got it, and then they go off to college and they're gone. You know, and that's one of the problems we have as parents because we're, we're, we think the professed worldview uh, is, is the goal. Um, but it isn't, and that's why it's so critical for us uh, to do those things that help our children see the, the truth, the reality of God's Word, not just the knowledge. Because all we're dealing there with is we're, we're feeding this notion that if you, if you answer the question right, then, then we give you a gold star or whatever, mm-hmm. something like yeah. that. Uh, or while I'm at home or while I'm in Sunday school or whatever it is, I know how to answer the question, but I don't really believe it. And so as a parent, we have to do those things that help cement in our children, this is really real. Because if, if they believe it's really real, now that's going to drive, drive them because that's, that's their personal worldview. Okay. So the professed worldview can change depending on who they're talking to. Absolutely. Right? So, right. So and I, I think to, to your point with marijuana and with, with life, you know, you could have somebody say in church during, you know, the chicken dinner after church, hey, this is how I feel about this. Oh, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, and then get down here to the state house, representative so-and-so, and uh, be in front of a lobbyist and say, something, oh, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. <laughs> That's exactly right. In fact, you guys face that here in the yeah. state. You had people yeah. who profess something about the speaker and then something happened differently. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's the world. We, we live in the, a fallen world. You know, people are manipulators. Uh, and people are driven by this need to be uh, accepted. And so you can, if you follow someone around and they're in group A, they may say X. And then group B, they may say Y. And, and it's because they're, they're seeking, I think in most cases, we'll just give them the benefit of the doubt, they're seeking to be accepted. Yeah. yeah. If, if I could jump in, because that's probably the last time I'll ever be able to speak to him. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I've had him, like, being able to speak with him for the last two days. It's been a great honor. But the thing I like about your work is that you're not just talking about philosophical views of worldview. You are face-to-face with young people, the future of, of America, the future of the world, and you travel all over. Um, what are you hearing? You know, because sometimes it's like, well, if a kid grows up in church and goes to a Christian college and Christian K through twelve, then they're going to be awesome. Not so. Mm-hmm. I've 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 done speaking in in a lot of Christian venues, and then you know if they go to the secular university, then you know, what are the kids saying? The battle, the struggle that's going on within their mind uh, yeah. that pertains to worldview. Well, let me answer this, David, with this with this experience that I had not too long ago. I was at uh, a Christian uh, school, academy, K through 12, mm-hmm. I guess you could say. And uh, and I was doing some teaching here and so forth. What I wanted to do, I wanted to meet with the faculty, and I wanted to meet with them, um, the, the younger grade faculty, and then I don't know how things are broken up anymore now. I used to be uh, grade school and senior high, but I, that doesn't yeah, even work yeah. anymore. <laughs> yeah. Junior high, senior high, all those names are different, but um, well, I met with the, we'll call it the elementary faculty. And, and one of the questions I asked them was, what is, what is the single most prominent issue you face with your children? And it was like with one voice, you know what they said? Gender identity. Gender identity. And 
And I said, wait a second, this is, this is one of the, honestly, I, I, I've been involved with this Christian school for a long, long time. This is one of the best Christian schools that, that integrates a biblical worldview into their teaching. Hmm. And yet they're elementary kids. I mean, when I was in elementary wow. school, you know, I was concerned about my horse or, you know, concerned about, you know, kid stuff. Mm -hmm. I wasn't concerned about my gender identity. And so... I wouldn't know what that was. Right? I, I like, wouldn't write either, you know? I don't but, know if I know what it is. To this day, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm struggling right now. Like, yeah. 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 So all of a sudden I begin to realize that, and we need to realize this as well, um, Christian education is important. There's no, absolutely no doubt about that. But if all we're doing in that education is building good test grades, mm -hmm. then we're missing something. Mm -hmm. uh, because we live in a world today, and you know, it's dangerous. Every, every generation thinks they're unique and so forth, but there, there is no doubt that we can say no time in the history of mankind has, has there ever been a ubiquitous wave of information and primarily entertainment that can, when I grew up, and of course I grew up in a rural area in Idaho, we had entertainment, if we were talking about, you know, professional entertainment and so forth, once a month, if, if that often, and we go to the drive-in movie or something like mm -hmm. that. I mean, we'd entertain ourselves, you know, out riding horses and, and playing ball and that kind of stuff. But now the ubiquitous of the entertainment industry is 24-7. Yeah. And that is the worldview because there, there is a fine line anymore between reality and virtual reality. Yeah. If you see a movie or a, a music, video music or so forth, that is presenting to you things that are contrary to a biblical worldview, but it appeals to you because it's made sweet, it's made nice, or whatever that is. That's what forms my worldview. Why? Because I saw it. And it's yeah. real to me. Yeah. So that's what's happening. The, the difference in what's happening in our children is they are being taught a worldview 24-7 through the media. Hmm. As a parent, I know somehow to cut that off, to limit the access to those types of things. But I'm curious from the standpoint of really cementing that worldview. Are there things that parents can be doing with their children to, to not only limit what they're taking in, but also to make the biblical Christian worldview real in their minds? Well, I'll answer it this way, and it may sound um, very parochial for me to do that, but that's why we've, we've created the Engagement Project and the call for families to begin to fulfill the royal law, and that is to lead their families in the ministry to the people on the left or right and across the street, people who are providentially in their neighborhood. They lead their children in praying for Mrs. Smith across the street. Um, to lead their children in being a witness to Mrs. Smith so that Mrs. Smith can see the reality of a Christian family and what that looks like, and then praying for her 
Because now all of a sudden, the reality of Christ, as he begins to work in Mrs. Smith, and the miracles associated with it, which I believe will happen. We've heard it from too many people now. You ask God to do what he wants to do, he's going to do it. And so the bottom line to what I'm saying is that our kids have to see the reality of the risen Lord Jesus Christ and the reality of his truth play out in their life. Not, not just spoken to them from a pulpit. I'm not minimizing that. You know what I'm saying? Sure. That's not real to them. Why? Because they've got a thousand truth claims that come to them all the time from everywhere. What they need to see is that it's real. It's real in their life. It's real in Mrs. Smith's life. It's real in my family's life. And I think that's one of the things that's missing. When, when, I, uh, when I was involved with the Institute, uh, with university students, Christians, all professing Christian students uh, coming to, to, to the Institute, that was one of the things we dealt with was that uh, they came with a formal knowledge of a biblical worldview. But they didn't really believe all of that. And it wasn't until they saw it that it became real. See, that's what cements us. That's what, that's our, our personal worldview is cemented when we believe something is really real. How do I know it's really real? Because I saw it. I experienced it. And right now, where do those experiences primarily come from? The media and entertainment. You said something before that, that I, I want to go circle back to a little bit because I, I think it's the, the underrated thing. And, and I appreciate the hesitancy to say, oh, it's unprecedented times, right? That, it, everyone said it's, it's, the, it's like the old, uh, this is the most important election of our lifetime line where it's like, yeah, it always is. <laughs> but, but I do think, you know, obviously the, the gender uh, issue is, um, is massive, right? It, it, is, it is unprecedented in some ways. And I think the, the combination of both the worldview of it, um, but another component that I think has, is what makes, makes it, I, I, makes me feel comfortable to say this is a historical shift. This is something very different, is the combination of the worldview and technology, right? We've, We've never lived in a time where information can spread so quickly and so personally um, like, like it is right now. And, and it, you know, it's, it's a hard thing for, I think, folks like us to, to really grapple with, which is we, we talk a lot about things like cultural transformation and how we want to be impacting the culture at CCV or at the Engagement Project or at Focus on the Family, whatever. But the reality is very few things actually impact the, the culture on a major scale. Right. Very, very, there's very few truth projects that you can actually look and say, hey, tw- this reached 20 million people. Right. Mm-hmm. Most of the things we do don't, don't other than this podcast, obviously, we <laughs> right. reach way more than right. that. 23 every day. or so much. Yeah, so go, give or take. <laughs> Minimum. Right? Minimum. 23 people. Okay. But, but that, that ability for worldview to, to and, and it's, it's the quintessential reason why we went from Obergefell in 2015, the, the same sex marriage decision, to less than 10 years later that, I mean, we're talking about kids being sterilized. Can you talk a little bit about that combination of worldview and technology mm-hmm. that brought us to this place? Yeah, and, and I think you're absolutely right, and that's why we were talking about it's unprecedented in the history of mankind to have uh, the, the kind of ubiquitous um, presentation of knowledge and truth claims 
uh, that comes to us 24-7. We've never had that before. It just hasn't existed. But the other thing you couple that with then is what has happened in, in recent history here and in, in our culture right here, and that is that the purveyors of that um, media and uh, entertainment, most of it's entertainment, and the purveyors of all that now ha- have embraced a worldview that is counter to a biblical worldview. And so, you know, we could have, you know, back growing up, I could have, I could have lived uh, in a country that had a contrary worldview, but it wouldn't really impacted me, right? I mean, I grew up on a farm and a ranch, and you know, I mean, every once in a while you might s- see other people and so forth, but that wouldn't impact. Well, now uh, that whole thing impacts me constantly from from everywhere, and it comes to me through the beautiful people. We'll say, you know, the beautiful people who sing songs, uh, who make movies, um, uh, they, they are sports stars, uh, and all of those, all of those things, including the industries that they represent, um, now have this huge impact upon me. So it's not only the ubiquitousness of the technology, but it's the worldview that's being pervaded uh, there as well. So it's just, it's like having, it's like, you know, if you wanted to say, you know, 100 years ago, you had a mentor who was with you 24-7. And that mentor's job was to pour into you that mentor's worldview. He took you fishing, he took you riding, he took you on trips, and, you know, he showed you this, he showed you that, and his job was to, well, you know, you're going to conform to that worldview, from that mentor. Well, now we have a million mentors who are constantly um, pouring into our, our lives and our kids' lives over and over again. That's a tough thing to, to fight against. Yeah, and kind of connecting some things you said in the last two answers, it's almost like they're creating this faux, uh, faux experience, like a counterfeit experience to the one that you're talking about with Mrs. Smith, where the where a child could tangibly see the work of Christ because of the entertainment that they're being bombarded with. And because it's maybe a consistent personality that they're watching, they feel like they're part of this experience, but they're really not. They're just taking it in, but they're not part of that experience, but it feels more tangible to them than uh, something spiritual with like a relationship with Christ. Yes. And this is the danger of, uh, we'll just call it virtual reality for a second. And that is that, it's a false reality, but it looks like it's real. And as high def increases, as the you know the sound, the quality of the sound increases, um, our ability to produce things that make me feel like it's real. The it's like remember when the first Avatar movie came out. You know, they were talking about how many people fell into deep depression because they got back into their reality and it wasn't, it wasn't an avatar world, right? And <clears throat> so I can, I can build this, this false reality that will sell you, a biblical, sell you a contrary worldview to a biblical worldview without all of the consequences associated mm-hmm. with, with those unrighteous actions and unrighteous things. The reality around us, as we know, eventually that unrighteousness will destroy people. And that's why we fight for good policy. 
right? Because bad policy destroys people. We're dealing with that in Colorado. You know, oh. we, we passed this law on marijuana and it's destroying people. Uh-oh. But the media will never portray that. So, so they will portray these things associated with the deviation of homosexuality and it will all be presented in a virtual reality way that makes you think this is so wonderful. It's not. You know, this is the angel of light, as the scripture says, presents himself as an angel of light. It looks wonderful, but it's not. The scripture says, where darkness abounds, how much more should the light abound? So we've picked on the media and culture, (laughs) but I just left a room with you, Dr. Tackett, where it was full of pastors. And it was um, very enlightening. I mean, it it, it was an awesome experience. But it was intriguing to see how you deal, and you're you're not a senior pastor that, that I know of, how you would deal and approach worldview and the perspective that you're coming from versus a senior pastor uh, dealing. We were talking about politics and the difference between politics and public policy and things. But what what is what is the issue that you're seeing in terms of getting this worldview um, teaching into the church and making sure that when they leave the church, kids leave the church, they have the right mindset? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's all rooted in in the notion of of making sure that we're teaching a comprehensive, systematic biblical worldview to our people. I, one of the one of the sad things I've I have found, and I know this is it's a it's a it's a knock, I guess, on our seminaries and so forth. But our we do not train pastors in a comprehensive biblical worldview. We just don't. There are good things that are being taught there, but I think without that comprehensive biblical worldview, then we don't help people understand how God designed social order and the nature of God behind why he designed social order this way and the blueprint for social order, what it should look like. We, we just don't, we don't do that. We don't talk about science. We don't talk about history. We don't talk about anthropology. Yeah, we don't talk about philosophy and ethics and so forth. And when, when we fail to build that biblical worldview, and then in particular our students go off to college, and they're now confronted with things they've never heard of before. And the narrative is, is brought to them in a very sweet way, mm-hmm. right? And so they fall for that. Why? Because we haven't built the, the true narrative for them in all of life, the 360 degrees of life. I think that has got to change. Now, when you're looking at, um, I don't want to put you on the spot on this, so maybe there's multiple answers on this, but when you're looking at what children are being assaulted with, and not just children, adults are, do, are, are falling prey to this, right? Um, what's, the, what's the main lie, or what's, what's some of the lies that you think um, are permeating worldview more than others. What, what, what's the false one narrative. lie, the false narrative, that the main lie that we need to be attacking um, as as the church? Okay, you know, what what is that to you when you're thinking that? Sure. Well, to me, of course, there are. I mean, there are a lot of attacks on the biblical worldview. There are a lot of narratives that are being risen in counter to a biblical worldview. But if, if I were to pull back and say, what is the fundamental lie that is attacking our culture today? It's a lie associated with human sexuality. And, uh, um, and in, in that uh, lie and distortion of God's design, male and female, 
I mean, who would have believed, you know, 10, 20 years ago that, that it would be radical to talk about male and female? But that is God's design. And from that, an understanding of what I call the noble male and the virtuous female and their role and in what it means to be a noble male, what it means to be a virtuous female, those things are under attack. And so in my mind, the way I see this is that the noble male, when God designed the male and he designed the female, they were different. I mean, that's how, how is it possible for us to say that's a radical statement, but they were, they were different. And not only were they different physically um, and even emotionally, but they were different in their purpose. And so the noble male is driven. The first, he has two engines that drive, drive him. And the first engine is the drive for, for truth and righteousness. Uh, and then his, the second engine is, 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 drives him to grace and compassion. The, the virtuous female, they're reversed. So her first drive is for grace and compassion, but that's bridled by the engine for truth and righteousness and wisdom. Well, when you remove truth from a culture in, in terms of absolute truth, then what you've done is you've undermined the primary purpose of the noble male. And so what happens is the noble male now is... is can no longer be driven for a desire for that which is right and true and good, the, the absolute truth of God and so forth. And so he, he ends up being either the buffoon or the beast, right? And the buffoon, I never watched the program, uh, Everyone Loves Raymond or something like, but it's my understanding, it's kind of the epitome of the male buffoon today. Well, he has no real purpose in life other than his own pleasure. And, that, you know, that's, that's what he seeks. And what, what happens into the, the female, she's no longer bridled by truth and wisdom and righteousness because we throw that out. So what happens in a culture, a culture can tip one way or the other, can tip toward the beast, which we see in countries around the world, where the male becomes the beast, or it can tip to the feminine side, where the male is the buffoon. And what drives us then is compassion, but it's not true compassion. It's what I call malevolent compassion. And so this, this is, I would submit to you that the number one ethic in our culture that we live in today is compassion. It drives virtually every one of our public policies, but it's a malevolent compassion. That's what we were talking about earlier, about, you know, we'll, we'll bring out this, the crying this or the weeping this mm -hmm. and so forth. What does it appeal? It appeals to our sense of compassion. Why? Because that's the number one ethic. But it's not driven by the truth of God. It's driven simply by an unbridled um, uh, compassion that becomes malevolent. You know, the scripture says if a man doesn't work, what? He doesn't eat. See, that wouldn't fly today. Why? Right. Because malevolent compassion would say that's evil. Yeah. Good point. But from God's standpoint, he says, no, what's, what is good for this man if he won't work? Make him hungry. Yeah. Because that hunger will drive him then to right. work, right? right? That's, the, that's the true compassion of God. But the malevolent compassion that drives our culture today 
And my guess is if you look at the look at the public policy that's going to be laid before the Ohio legislature this year and, and go down and mark how many of these are driven by compassion. Mm. Uh, my guess is it'll be almost all of them. That's what drives most everything. The whole, this whole human sexuality thing, what it's driven by, it's driven by, well, this, if this person thinks they're a woman, we ought to be compassionate to that and embrace that. And if you don't embrace that, then, then you're, you're uncompassionate and you're hateful to them. I, I've got a, a longer rant on this because I think this is exactly right, uh, especially in, in in framing it up as it's not true compassion either. The, the, the best example is is the drug epidemic on yes. this, right? Because it, we, we, we frame this up as mental health and drug addiction. It's really all drug addiction. And the, the answer from the state government is spend money, right? So what, what we're going to see in the state budget that's about to come out in Ohio, you're going to see this in most states is, oh, we have to deal with this mental health and drug addiction thing. And, and everything in terms of what is measured is, well, we're pouring money, we're investing in showing compassion for these people in a, in a difficult situation, which, again, sounds great. There is zero compassion in showing, us, is this actually producing good results? Is this actually getting people, uh, helping their mental health, helping their addiction? And, and the answer is, in the most part, no. It, it, it's, it's funding facilities and, and things like that, but it is... Uh, th- that is that is again just a quintessential Dell Tackett moment of explaining the worldview that's kind of undergirding all of this. Um, we are running over on time, but I, I have <laughs> I've got one last question for you here, uh, in particular, uh, just because uh, in a couple uh, in a little bit we're going to be uh, honoring the life of a, a dear friend, Tom Minery. Yeah. Um, and you worked with Tom for a number of years. Yes. Um, wanted to just ask if you could share a little bit of uh, your your. Uh, the, uh, the legacy of Tom, any memories you have working with him through sure. the years? And, yeah. yeah, yeah, I had the privilege of working uh, with Tom when I was uh, executive vice president of Focus on the Family. Tom was the vice president over public policy at Focus. And, uh, and, and so I worked with him almost every day. Tom and I would meet. And Tom is the... It, for one, t- one time I thought, Tom is the most brilliant person I've ever met in my life because he seemed to know everybody. He seemed to know un- understand public policy, um, which, quite frankly, I, I was not anywhere near Tom in understanding all of that. And so I always looked forward uh, to those meetings because I was going to learn a lot uh, from Tom. And not only did he know things, but he was wise in, in how he approached people. And... Uh, Tom was always every every time I saw him interact with someone, there was it was grace in in Tom uh, and compassion. He was a noble male. I mean, he was driven by truth um, and righteousness and wisdom. But that drive for truth was always bridled by grace and compassion. And um, so I, I'm you know um, I'm going to miss him terribly. Going to miss him. In fact. The reason I'm here in Columbus, Ohio, was generated because of Tom Henry. Tom Henry called me, what, a month or two ago, um, and he said, would you come to Ohio? And uh, so I'm here because of Tom. And, uh, and now, you know, Tom's gone. Well, you know, we know where Tom is, and, and I'm, I'm thankful for that. Uh, and obviously the Lord had finished using Tom. I always... My, my position is when God takes away these people from us, 
then th th what that means is that there ought to be a handful of people that spring up in his place. And that's what we need to pray for, that what Tom has planted, the fruit of Tom's life, will now raise up people, uh, multiple people, you know, who will fill in, in behind him. I'll miss him terribly. Well, uh, Dell, I just want to thank you again for your time today. But most of all, I think all of us around this table want to thank you for your ministry and the way that it's impacted all of us. Um, we're so grateful for the way the Lord has blessed your efforts. And again, thank you for this chat. It's been very, very eye-opening and beneficial. Well, I appreciate it very much. And I want to offer my return to that is how much I appreciate what you're doing. It's so valuable. And, uh, you know, my heart is with you. This episode of The Narrative has been presented by CCV and produced by Wessler Media. If you found today's episode insightful, go ahead and leave us a review or a rating, and please subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. The Narrative is hosted by me, Mike Andrews, Aaron Baer, and David Mahan. Take care, and we'll see you next time on The Narrative.